Welcome to the 7th Art Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Robertson. I am a producer on the show, and joining me is Christopher Heron, uh, the host of the show. So the interview you're about to hear is with documentary filmmaker um, who made a film for Hot Docs 2013 called Downloaded. The film is about, obviously, the downfall, sort of the rise and downfall of Napster. Is that obvious? Downloaded was a documentary with a lot of buzz surrounding it. Um, VH1 produced it. It's interesting to have a documentary that focuses on a historical historical point that was both not far in the past, but also not particularly recent or in the headlines. So it kind of allows for a bit of an oral history of Napster. So you have all of the major players, including uh, Sean Parker. This is interesting because this is Alex's first documentary, and um, we're able to get into the nitty gritty. And and I think one thing that's interesting about Alex is that he he does truly know his stuff when it comes to the technological end. He was an early adopter of all of the very nerdy internet corners that we. I mean, I include myself in them, although I'm not the same age. But like uh, Usenet, obviously, um, various other downloading programs. We were able to kind of t- talk about the matter with a. Uh, with a bit of a magnifying glass. This is Alex Winter, and you're listening to The Seventh Art. That's something I was gonna, I'm going to probably ask, but I'm yeah. curious. Like, so you have some, you have a child who's 14, and yeah. it's like, does Napster even matter? Because it's like, whenever you have something that initiates things, yeah. the younger generations just see, oh well, we've always known downloading. Like, downloading has always existed. No, so. he just watched the movie the other day, and um, I mean, we could talk about this on camera if you want. He yeah, just watched yeah. the movie the other day, and and was really, really intrigued by the history of it all. You know, mm. it's like he knew, he understood enough to know that the that the world that he was born into is new. Yeah. I mean, he gets that. Yeah. I mean, I've got, you know, the funnier shit is the little, little kids. Like, I got a three-year-old who's about to turn four who, like, opens a magazine and tries to flip it like an iPad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, like, he's so tech aware because yeah. he was completely born with a mouse in his hand. Yeah. Like, you know, that he doesn't understand hard copies at all. Yeah. Like, to him, that's a completely foreign universe. Lee at least grew up with graphic novels and comic books. And, okay, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's, it's shit's moving so fast yeah. that like the, the generations are getting smaller and smaller in terms of what they're used to processing and how they process yeah. it. It's really interesting. But they, they're not, they're not anti-historical. You know what I mean? No, yeah. Like they're really interested in the, like he was like, Fanny is really cool, man. Like he really thought he was cool. And like what he, what he did was cool. Yeah. And he understood like what it took to break through that wall. So, um, you know, I still tell him I'll, I'll beat his ass if I catch him bit torrenting. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I'm the one who's going to get sued. So. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they had that article, which was uh, how many Hollywood studios have active bit torrenting ports going that they're well, noticing. They're, it's like, they're also full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> they always were. Like, even when I, when I met Fanning and Parker back in 02, they were like, you know what? Everyone's full of shit. Madonna feeds us tracks under the table, yeah. doesn't tell her label, wants us to leak them, then sues us for the publicity, which we're happy to have. The whole thing was such a racket. Yeah. I mean, the bands all, I mean, that's what was funny about Lars and Dre was like, Lars and Dre just wanted money. 
And they did. They were the only people that got money out of Napster. And they got a fair amount. They got a million dollars each. Yeah. And they have the same lawyer. So the lawyer basically got $2 million. The lawyer basically sued Napster because the bands all knew what was going on. They knew it was great promotion. Yeah. They were all, you know, all these bands, most of the bands that were, you know, speaking out against them were feeding them tracks. And then everybody else was feeding them tracks. You know, just put this out on Napster, don't tell anybody. Leak this on Napster, don't tell anybody. You know. So was it... Was it, you met them in 02 or did you meet yeah. them before then? Is that how you approached the material? Yeah, but I don't, I don't know when you want to start because I'm afraid I'm going to, oh, you're going, okay, great. I'm afraid I'm going to do the whole interview before <laughs> we roll. Um, yeah, I met them in, uh, I met them in 02 and um, uh, I was a big Napster um, user uh, and I was kind of big on, on the early days of the internet um, as a layman. Mm. I was into technology and I was into music. I was doing a lot of music videos in those days and um, uh, and I was like on BBS groups and news groups and sort of the really early clunky days of, of social community online. Um, so, you know, in 99, when Napster showed up, it was like, for those of us that were already pretty savvy online, it was like a lightning bolt. It, mm. was, it was, you know, it was like driving, you know, in a three-wheeled Yugo and then someone hands you a Ferrari and no one else on the road has a Ferrari. It was that different in terms of the speed, the functionality, the social community aspect, media transference. Um, it just it was dial-up era, so it was, there weren't fast, you know, web apps in those days. Um, so I got really intrigued by it immediately, and then, you know, started to watch from a distance as Fanning and Parker got drawn into this extremely hostile and, and intense legal battle, um, where they were very personally vilified, and um, you know, and. I had uh, a lot of understanding for why the labels and the you know the artists were freaking out. Like I got why, you know, with Lars specifically, I got why he freaked out at having a track that they hadn't completed showed up on, mm. on Napster, and no one knew what Napster was. So it was too early for Lars to realize that it was probably an engineer within his own studio that had screwed them, and not <laughs> these guys in San Marino. But nobody really understood how this stuff worked, so they everybody freaked out. Um, and I got it, and I got why the labels were freaking out. Um, because it was this massive seismic shift in everything, right? So, uh, so I sought out those guys then, and I um, pitched a way to tell their stories of straight up narrative, and I sold that to a studio, and I wrote it at the studio um, as a narrative in '04, mm. um, and then it went into turnaround, meaning it went into sort of a development hell. Um, and rather than fight through that, I had just moved on, went on to work on other movies and stuff. So. Um, but in the process of writing the script, I had become very close, not only with Fanning and Parker, but everyone on the label side, people on the tech side, people on the sort of net ethics side, like J.P. Barlow. Um, and it was a really interesting time for the internet, the early 2000s, you know, because the rest of the world hadn't caught up. There was no iTunes store yet. So the rest of the world hadn't caught up to this thing that those of us that were online were like, wow, this is, the world's going to totally explode, right? Like, this is not about downloading Madonna tracks. This is about... <laughs> We, you know, you knew something like WikiLeaks was coming. You knew something that that was more global was coming, um, and so it was a very exciting time. Um, and there was this really great divide between the sort of press, media, legal um, spin on the downloading revolution and what was actually happening. And it just felt like two completely different worlds. And so I thought, okay, screw it, I'll move on to other stuff. And then, like in 2010, just before SOPA, I guess. Um, I was kind of dumbfounded that there had been no resolution to any of these issues. Like, the world was still divided. Even post Steve Jobs, I was like, 
the iTunes store proved that people would pay for downloading, right? Um, so it just seemed really crazy to me that we had this, this complete divide. Uh, and at that point I was like, it seemed like it would make more sense to let the actual players speak for themselves than for me to make a narrative that um, tried to sum up this whole world, right? Mm. Um, so that's why I decided to make a doc out of it. Now, were you, you mentioned BBS, but were you involved in the IRC uh, community that kind of led to Napster? Or was Napster when MP3s kind of came into your purview? Um, no, I mean, I was able to pull down, you know, you had these, like, you had, um, uh, you know, Justin Frankel's, uh, Justin Frankel was sort of like the big, the first person into the space in a big way. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, and he created sort of a web-based music player that worked. Of course, you had to get the music, which was really difficult. Mm. And in those days, you weren't trying to like, you know, nobody was sort of using it for nefarious purposes. You'd be trying to find a bootleg, you know, or you'd be trying to find, you know, you wouldn't spend 15 hours getting a track you could spend four dollars, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That would be crazy. So, um, you know, so those of us that were using um, Winamp and some of the other sort of early, you know, uh, desktop-based players, I was certainly into that. Um, I'm also, you know, a director and I was doing a lot of visual effects oriented work. I still do. So I was using, you know, in those days, in the, in the uh, early to mid-90s, um, I was using those technologies real player, things like that, in order to watch my dailies and yeah. effects transfers. It started in that era. Um, I had a company in London, so I, and I lived in New York, so I had a lot of my dailies sent to me in New York, and I would watch them. It was, it was like watching, you know, a toilet bowl with Vaseline <laughs> smeared on it, and somehow it was so cool we did it, mm. but it was completely impractical. Um, so I was sort of in it from that end. I wasn't a hacker, um, but I was on IRC on the sort of outer loser mm. ends of like, the IRC, not the sort of inner workings where Fanning and Parker and Ian Rogers and those guys were living. Did you get an idea? One thing that interests me is how people came to MP3s. Like, in in, in the film we talk about, there, there's the, the conversation about community and sharing and, oh, this is really cool, you gotta check it out. But throughout the film, the artists that are always mentioned are ones that, you know, you probably know anyways, Metallica, Madonna, Dr. Mm -hmm. Dre. So I'm, I'm curious, when you're talking to these people, do they find that the people that were drawn to it were looking for those rare things, those things that you just mentioned you couldn't buy easily, or were they, were it, was it like those college kids that were just kind of downloading whatever was cool? Well, who was the predominant yeah, user? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, let's be, let's be honest. It's like when you have something like Napster that scales that big, mm. right, where you have basically the whole world using it, you know, of course, it's like the internet. The internet has always had value, mm. but the internet has, has also largely been a garbage dump. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the internet has largely been, you know, from the very beginnings of the internet, I mean, post the sort of military university era, I mean, it was mostly porn and crappy banner ads and, you know, and garbage, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, for me, it's always been really unfair to devalue Napster's, um, what it offered. I mean, forgetting the social media, forgetting the innovation, forgetting all the things that I actually think make it really mm. revolutionary, but just as a music, sharing service, right? Um, I think it's really unfair to look at the sort of garbage dump end, the worst end of how yeah. it was used, even though it was used by a thousand percent more people than the people who used it well. To me, the people that used it well are what made Napster such an emotionally poignant time. Hmm. You know, and I think that the people that responded downloaded, because there's still this crazy divide. Like, it's really, sometimes I feel like I'm talking to 
like a space alien when I'm talking to someone who's just like, no, it was just for stealing music. No, I'm just like, you know, really, even in 2013, you still have that little understanding of how the networks and what, you know, why these changes were important mm -hmm. in wor the world we live in today, that that's all you see. Um, and so sure, people were using it because they could get yeah. vast quantities of music for free. Obviously, they were, you know, just like, you know, uh, people use Google and YouTube, you know, largely for garbage dump reasons, but that doesn't devalue the things about YouTube that are really amazing, right? And have really revolutionized distribution in all these different ways. You know, you could say, well, yeah, but it's still mostly people like, you know, rubbing peanut butter on their cat's mouth and making it talk, you know? Um, so for me, what was interesting about Napster was not the music yeah. sort of kiting stuff. It was you know, I could, it was first of all, it was social networking. Mm -hmm. I was able to connect with people all over the world quickly. I was making friends in Japan, Russia, Finland, wherever. Um, I was able to get into their entire hard drive. You can't really quantify what that was like. No one even does, no service does that today. But you could go all the way into somebody's hard drive quickly. I mean, you could do it using virtual desktop or like certain apps, right? But not in that way where you had a social media service that had social networking, real-time chat, go into anyone's hard drive, move media all in one place. Um, and I would like go in there and you know, someone would be like, oh, you like you know, Coltrane bootlegs from 67? Have you heard of this Japanese trumpet player? I'm like, huh, no, I haven't. Bam, here's this whole other tree of music that I would go flying down. Um, the, the sort of cultural exploration and interconnectivity of what Napster offered is, was really revolutionary. We, we, and we don't have today a service that's quite that amazing. Um, and the worst end of it, in my opinion, the sort of garbage dump end of it, was the people that would just go on and pull down, you know, all of the Madonna, you know, catalog or mm. something. Yeah, it seems like BitTorrent was maybe that that crowd, and something like SoulSeek, which retained the virtual desktop, retained the chat, still kind of exists to this day. Absolutely, as, yeah, it fragmented. Yeah. I mean, sort of like we say in the movie, and, and this is what you know Napster was warning the industry about when they were suing them was like, look. You know, we're not, um, and this is true, Fanning and Parker were, are very brilliant, in my opinion, and did create, you know, they were able to code it and scale it, which was no mean feat. A lot of people were like, ah, anybody could have done it. Everyone was trying to do it. They actually did it. Mm. So you can't take that away from them. However, this, it was coming, right? This was, these changes were going to come. And what Napster was saying at the time was like, you've now aggregated all these people into one place. If you blow us up, they're not going to stop downloading. They're just going to be blown to smithereens all over the world and they're going to start creating, which of course is what happened. You had Oinkster, you had all these other services that showed up, um, some of which were really amazing. Um, Oinkster was actually an incredible community, which I was a very big part of. Actually, I never downloaded from Oinkster ever. You can't take that. It was a, a, a username that sounded much like my name. Um, but uh, it was an amazing community. And there were other splinter communities that erupted after Napster where people who were interested in music sharing and sort of community and, and finding tracks and developing each other, sort of curating for each other that they cropped up. But it wasn't under one roof anymore. Now this seems like the central tension in the, the narrative because you have so much about the community to begin with and then once the lawsuits come in, it kind of takes over the attention. So when you're crafting a story like this, you've got a few layers of things that you have to deal with. You have to deal with the history of the recording industry, the history of the internet, how did you, like, did it ever seem like there were, were too many things or you needed to 
quickly focus on something else without maybe giving something its due? Or? Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, I have five movies in dailies. You yeah. know what I mean? I have a ton of movies there that we that we will probably, you know, not probably, we will definitely be using for ancillary material for conversation starters as we distribute. Um, we'll let you let that go by. I shouldn't have mentioned Oyster, man. <laughs> I'm going to jail. Um, so, um, so yeah, we have a lot of stories there. Everybody that we interviewed had a lot to say. For me, it was really simple because um, the sort of edict that I set forth going forward so that it wouldn't become a mess was really stick to the Napster story. Mm. And if it didn't have some direct correlative to Fanning and Parker, we didn't use it. Mm. So their story is fairly epic. Like, you know, they were, they were there from 98 to 2001, 2002. It blew up. They had to regroup, they were kind of felled, they had to rebuild themselves. Meanwhile, you've got Steve Jobs coming in, hiring up all the Napster people, using their UI, and basically selling the industry what they couldn't. Um, then you have, you know, sort of those guys reintroducing themselves into the marketplace, Parker with Spotify and fanning through all these other means with Snowcap. So for me, it was really just about using them as a bouncing ball to take us through um, the last 14 years of the Nets evolution. There was no way I was going to try to either claim, you know, um, that we could tell the whole story of the last 14 years. There's a million stories there. It's why the social network is great because it's like you've got this great story over here, you know, you've got this great story with Napster. There's a great movie in Google if somebody wants to make it. I mean, there's so many movies and stories that can be told with what's gone down in the last 15 years. It also seems like it is a, a post-internet documentary in the sense that it doesn't. It's not so didactic. There, there are elements like IRC, things that maybe some people would need explained, but it kind of just throws you to the or sink or swim scenario where it's like you'll just pick up on it. Like it's moving so quickly yes. as it goes by. Was there ever the feeling like maybe you'd lose some people early yes. on? Or <laughs> yeah, the way, the way I felt about it honestly was I wanted people to work. Yeah. I really wanted people to work for the movie. Like, and not for, for the, the movie meaning for us, because mm. we're just you know, a couple guys that are putting our arms around this tale. But for the subject matter, like, you know, I wanted people to go, IRC, what's that? Let me go find out. Mm. Or like, you know, the DMCA, who are they kidding? Like, that's the, like, I was saying this in the Q&A last night, like, you know, it's, it's dropping a little bit of a bomb for Parker just to say we're operating in a legal gray area and we thought we had a safe harbor and there's this thing called the DMCA. You know, that's, you could write a whole movie just about the DMCA and everybody argues about the, and that's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Everybody argues about whether that really provides safe harbor. And even while I was making this movie, a lot of people would be like, oh man, how can you put that in the movie? That's such bullshit. I mean, everyone knows that the DMCA doesn't protect file sharing. Well, Google just won their suit against Viacom last week using the exact safe harbor clause that Parker's referring to in the DMCA with the Supreme Court right now in 2013. That's the, the exact legal argument that Fanning and Parker were making in 1999-2000 that they lost with. Well, they never got to court, yeah. but they were adjuncted. And everyone said it was an absurd argument. Well, obviously it wasn't absurd because Google just won with that exact same argument. So, you know, there's an enormous amount there if you really want to investigate it. And the, the goalposts are moving constantly. Um, so for me, it was about... You know, the thing, I, it was kind of like I wanted to make a net-based movie in the sense of like, all the information is at your fingertips in this day and age. So you have no excuse to watch the movie and just say Napster was just about pirating or the labels were just stupid. You know, neither of those are true. Mm. There's a lot of gray area and there's a lot of interesting dynamics if you want to go and research it.
Was that also the rationale behind this kind of montage aesthetic of all of these newscasts and things that are being stitched together? Well, I mean, I, what I wanted to do was sort of show the speed and the insanity of that experience, you know, because that's the one thing I really got hanging around the guys and doing the research that I did was that Napster was like, you know, it was like an, a bad acid trip for those guys. I mean, it was just like stuff was coming at them so fast and people were spinning stories so quickly and they'd be talking about the Supreme Court one week and then they weren't even going to court the next week and it was a madhouse. And I sort of feel like that's kind of the way things still are. You know, I think that, that the opposition, you know, to the internet, which is as stronger today than it was then. I mean, they're doing, you know, look at what just happened to Aaron Schwartz. I mean, they're doing, they're being very punitive um, and, uh, uh, and they're imposing some pretty intense, um, uh, you know, um, restrictions, legislation, you know, punishment um, on people for using the net, um, you know, largely just the way the net works, right? So um, I kind of wanted to show the way in which the story had been framed. Um, and that happens very fast with a lot of misinformation. Um, and I didn't want to stop and pick each piece of information apart. I wanted people to be able to sort of take, you know, holy crap, and then start to do some of that work on their own. And you have a motif of using kind of the outtakes of those interviews as well. Was that something that Fanning was okay with, or did you have to run it by him? Um, I didn't, but he was, I mean, they thought it, I mean, they thought it was, was cool. And I remember when Parker first saw any of the movie, he was just like, holy shit, my hair. I mean, that was the first <laughs> thing he said. But, but in all honesty, he was like, you know, I think they were really, you know, pleasantly surprised at how, you know, how cogent they came off, because I don't think they felt cogent at the time. Mm. I think that they just felt like deer in the headlights. And I think they were made to feel like idiots and they were made to feel like thieves and they were made to feel like just these dumb kids, you know, by everybody, mm. even some people within the Napster team. So I think that, you know, it was kind of fun for them to go, oh, okay, we actually did have a legal argument and it did make sense. Mm. And, you know, we were making sense in terms of what, how we wanted this thing to monetize. Um, but, you know, for me, it was just about finding interesting material that hadn't been run aground already in, in the news. And when you were setting up the talking head portions, I, I found the locations really interesting that you chose for each person. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the decisions to, for instance, was it Iyanar, uh, mm -hmm. like the jukebox behind him, or even, yeah. even like getting some of the Napster team together and playing them off one another. Mm -hmm. um, what was that process like? Um, you know, the thing for me with, with with docs, and especially this one where you're dealing with tech-oriented issues, which can be very dry, um, is that all of the players are so interesting, and they're, they have so much personality that it was income, I was really felt it was a priority to interview them all in their own environment and glean as much of that environment as I possibly could out of them. So, you know, that's Donnie Einer's basement at his house in Connecticut. That's his home, you know? And that's his jukebox, <laughs> you know? And he's got like walls of, uh, I mean, walls and walls and walls of gold and platinum records as far as the eye can mm. see. And it's awesome. This is a guy who's lived and breathed music for, you know, decade after decade after decade at a really high level. Um, so I think that, you know, people's environments say a lot about them. You know, I, I try not to, I don't really live in the sort of patronizing school of documentarians where I'm gonna like, you know, kind of make these people hang themselves, yeah. you know? Um, I find that stuff actually really endearing um, and it, it gives them as much personality as possible 
So, um, so that was important. Sort of have, I mean, that's Fanning was shot in Fanning's house, and we didn't really muck with the backgrounds too much, and um, all of that stuff. That was Parker's house in New York where we shot Sean. So I, I didn't have anybody in a set environment ever. And it's interesting you're mentioning you get a sense in the documentary that there was a lot of troubles for for uh, Scott and Sean, but there's also the fact that they they look good when you're interviewing them now. So that right. I found that as an interesting juxtaposition, especially earlier in the doc, because mm -hmm. you kind of know that things are going to work out okay for for Scott, especially uh, right. just with these lavish places he's being interviewed in, looking yeah. good. Um, how did you protect that kind of reading at the end? from the beginning, where you have to illustrate the struggles that they're going through. Well, we didn't show, we don't show the two of them together till the end. Yeah. We kept that sort of away um, from people so that you don't, the whole thing doesn't just feel like a campsite tale, you know? Um, but also, frankly, there's a lot of other people in the movie. Mm. And it's really, you know, for me, I wanted to kind of bookend it with them. But the meat of the movie is a lot of people. Mm. You know, and it's a lot of label people, and it's a lot of, you know, artists and all these other people. even. Excuse me. There's a substantial amount from the other guys from Napster, like Ollie and Jordan and Chris Fenner and Brandon and those guys. So, you know, um, I wanted to try to convey um, the experience of what it would be like for two 19-year-old guys to go through something really crazy and really traumatic, um, and but revolutionary and impactful. Um, and then sort of circle back to them later to see how they respond to their own experience. I think there's a lot of emotionality from both of them. Even though they look okay and they've got plenty of money, you know, it's a lot of emotionality to revisit that period. And I think that comes across in the movie, which I'm happy about, because I think it's true. Mm. You know, I think that it's sort of like, they often say, Fanning and Parker, because they're, they're still very close, that, you know, they're very close because they sort of went to war together, you know, and they've got that bond that you have when you go to war together. And it's very hard to, for a lot of people to sympathize with million, multiple multimillionaires, right? But it really was an intense experience and, um, and they really were vilified. And so uh, despite the fact that they look, they've cleaned up nice, I think there's still a lot of scar tissue there. Do you think that there's a contrast between how, for instance, Fanning was interviewed at the beginning versus how he's interviewed now? It seems like he's a little more weary, a little more cautious. He seemed kind of forthcoming in the early days of Napster when he's getting interviewed, and now he seems to measure his words a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, he was, A, he was heavily coached by, you know, people who, who ran presidential war rooms, so like by the best, yeah. right? And these people are awesome. These are like friends of mine now, and, and they're an amazing group of people, the people that came in and ran, you know, the, you know, having David Boys, having Ricky Simon, having this, you know, Hank Berry, this sort of amazing sort of A-team of people but um, you can see in the movie this real transition uh, with him from just this kid with a vision who's just gonna go out and like, you know, passionately sell his vision. Okay, and um, uh, you can see the transition from that yeah. kid, right? From the sort of doe-eyed, you know, psyched 19-year-old, 18-year-old who's gonna sell his vision to after the lawsuits, after the vilification, after realizing the labels are never going to play ball and the whole thing's going to go to someone who's just very guarded, very wary. Um, and I think Sean is maturity because he's a man now. Yeah. So I think now he's at a place where he will actually give fairly candid interviews, but he will never be that person ever again. Do you find that maybe the, the sorest spot was when, uh, when um, Sean was together with the rest of the Napster team in that interview segment? Because he seems to, at one point you just 
fade out the other audio and just focus on his reactions to just some of the things they're saying. Yeah. Maybe if you could speak to that dynamic that they had. Um, you know, they were like a band. Yeah. You know, they were like a band. It was like, you know, Fanning wrote the music, Parker was the lead singer, and you know, you had the bass player, you had the drummer. I mean, for me, I know exactly who plays what in that band, but you had a band. <laughs> and you know, they loved each other and they hated each other just like a band does. Um, and, uh, you know, or you have like a platoon in a war, you know? Um, and so at a certain point, um, you know, it's really more, almost more like a military metaphor. I think for Fanning, you know, he was the, you know, the platoon leader, the sergeant, and, you know, that was their Hamburger Hill, and you got all the other guys sort of laying out the minutia of a battle that they lost quite bloodily, and I think that a lot of that stuff had been put out of Fanning's mind, mm. you know, understandably. So I think there are certain sequences like that one where he's really being reminded for the first time, probably since it happened, of the sort of bloody details of what went down, you know, it's a lot to process. I think. <laughs> What's your relationship like with uh, DJ Spooky? Because he's listed, he's he does the the music, but he's also listed in the in the film as a, a musician. But he's, he's also a kind of theorist and cultural theorist, a multimedia yeah. artist. Um, what made you choose him, and what was your relationship like? Um, well, I met uh, Paul um, years ago in New York, and um, he ended up doing the music because I wanted him for the movie as an interview, and he came in and we did the interview, and while he was there, I asked him to compose the mm. score. So, um, you know, I, I was, you know, the movie is not littered with bands talking about Napster for a reason. Um, you know, I didn't want um, to make kind of one of these pop culture cable movies of, you know, where you've just got all these talking heads, you know, here's Bono, here's Sting, here's, you know, the, you know, the Black Keys or whatever, talking about what a bummer or how cool downloading was. Mm. So I was really specific about which artists I, uh, um, you know, asked to be in the movie. And I made sure whatever side of the argument they were on, that they were really articulate and had a really deep-seated opinion about it. Um, and so there's only like five art, you know, it's like Mike D, Spooky, Noel Gallagher, Henry Rollins. Um, I knew these were guys that I'd read in, in the press a lot saying really interesting things about the technological revolution on all sides, pro, super anti, someone like Rollins is kind of in the middle, you know, he's very anti certain aspects of it, he thinks it's devalued music, but he also recognizes that it's good for, you know, people to access more music. Um, that was the stuff, like, again, I didn't want people to sell my argument, and I didn't really want kind of superficial, you know, cheesy um, interviews either. So Spooky is, you know, the thing about Paul is he's super educated about technology, the ethics of the internet, um, and he can speak to it as an artist and almost as like a cultural spokesman, um, which is perfect. Mm. It's also a snapshot of a period of time now when you're making it, and I'm, I'm curious that you used the word downloaded as the title. I mean, there are obviously many other things you could use, but especially since now it seems like streaming is the, the shift. Um, what was the rationale behind that? Because that was the, that was the absolute essence of what Napster was. Mm. You know, it was, it was in a way, so metaphorically, kind of the, the technological revolution was downloaded to all of us. That's how we got it. You know, the, the means of moving information may change, I mean, streaming just showed up as the, streaming's been around, like yeah. I said, since RealPlayer. We've been using it for 15, 16 years. But right now it's the big thing, the cloud is the big thing. In two years, who knows what the big thing's gonna be, right? So, but you'll never be able to take away the fact that this whole thing started with downloading. Mm, no. And, and do you feel like 
with Spotify and, and, and Parker's involvement in that, where does that come out on the ethical uh, spectrum as far as its relationship with Napster or even Pandora, things like that? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, Parker and Fanning were saying from the beginning that people would pay for the convenience of downloading music or streaming music or whatever you want to, you know, call having music accessible to you via these big open portals, mm, right? Yeah. Where you can just go in and grab everything. Um, they were trying, they were yelling from the mountaintops to, you know, or to the mountaintops in those days. You know, that yes, this will be a monetizable, completely legitimate business service if you get behind it. Um, I think, frankly, that, you know, Pandora is great, Spotify is great. Napster proved that then, iTunes proved it then. Yeah. You know, Steve Jobs came along in 0203 and proved categorically that people would pay, you know, in an era when it was not even that convenient to use iTunes. People still paid, right? So. You know, to me, there's, you know, we live in a transitional time in that the marketplace is still hasn't caught up to the technology because mm -hmm. they're, you know, for a lot of reasons, they're slow, they're not uniform. To be fair to them, they're not just, you know, old, angry people. It's a, they're very hard industries to change quickly. You know, it's hard for them to adjust, change their business models, move everything around, get everyone to agree, have trade agreements, union agreements, regulations, blah, blah, blah. But the, you know, the fact is that these are just, there's a myriad of services out there that allow you to pay for your music today. Um, I think that that's not the problem. The problem is compensating artists. Yeah. That's the problem. That's what we don't have and what we're in danger of is that in this, the worst mistake that the pre-existing industries can make is if they screw up so badly that these new digital companies just come in out of left field and take over their industries. The people that are going to lose in that are the artists. Mm. Because however, whatever you want to say about the movie industry or the record industry in terms of the way artists are treated, they still know how to develop artists. They still know how to, to curate, right? That's what record labels do in a way that the digital companies don't. Mm. The companies are like, here's a big garbage dump. We're going to slap a subscription fee on this or banner ads. We'll make a shit ton of money and just have at it. Mm. No artist development. No curation, just a big garbage dump. We'll get rich and you guys figure it out, right? And the artist is going to really lose in that scenario. Did you feel like maybe Henry Rollins' argument about the devaluation of music maybe should have been in there more? Like, that's what I came away with thinking. And Lessig mentions it briefly when he says that the lawsuits should have been about what you say now, uh, compensating artists, because the, the, the major dilemma with something like Spotify is that you you make as much as one album, like twenty dollars, yeah. when you when your song gets played like three hundred thousand times. Yeah. So like so you're basically not getting compensated. Right. And that's that's an example, uh, Damon from Galaxy Five Hundred, where they actually own the rights. And yeah. it, I found that like a curious addendum. Uh, did you ever feel like there was certain ethical positions you wanted to favor more or um, no, like I said, I think that, that there's that stuff is underscored to the degree that there's so many issues yeah. that st stuff is underscored to the degree that you can go out and get your head around it. But we're also creating a conversation. So like we've already, me and my editor Jacob have already made a whole sub clip, right? That we're going to put out with the movie. That's yeah. all about just that. Yeah. That's just about the devaluation of music. You know, the the where the artist gets screwed in the new paradigm as much as the old paradigm, sort of what Ian Rogers calls the noise floor of there being too much shit and not being able to figure out how to work your way through it. Um, so we're gonna sort of take the movie as a jumping off point and spit out a lot more of that content um, as, you know, in an ancillary form. It'll be very accessible. Um, but, you know, I think it would have done people's head in yeah. to try to like, 
you know, now I gotta get my head around that. You know, people, yeah, because people will say, well, why isn't there more Creative Commons stuff in the movie? And like, you know, you could go in so many different directions. And I felt like I owed, because the movie is about the rise and fall of Napster, essentially, and because out of fairness, Parker and Fanning aren't Creative Commons yeah. guys, I think it's a little, you know, that's sort of, as a documentarian, that's what I don't like about docs is when the filmmaker's agenda just kind of like shoves everyone else out of the way. I'm like, yes, I'm probably more interested in Creative Commons issues than they are, yeah. but it's none of my business because it's not their business. So I was really cognizant of not wanting to impose my own um, thing on that story because it would have had no relevance on Napster at all. Because Napster was, they were two businessmen with a failed business at the end of the day. Do you have a, a cross-platform uh, uh, dream for this? Like things like to leverage it the way that the internet, maybe to kind of mirror that platform, uh, be it ancillary features on a website or something? Oh yeah, yeah, we're doing all of that. We have a really, we have a big streaming deal which hasn't been announced yet, so I can't talk about it in detail. It's getting announced on Tuesday. But um, we made, that was the most important deal for us to make. Mm. We're doing a small theatrical, which is really just promotional to kind of kick off the, the digital. You know, we're doing iTunes, cable VOD, but it'll be streaming, you know, on a gazillion portals via ad revenue and all that. So people got paid. People who made the movie got paid back. You know, everybody's happy. Mm. Um, I always like to say the net, the net is fully monetizable now. It's getting better and better all the time. It's, again, it's the artists that we have to protect. Um, but for a lot of content creators, you can get paid. I mean, you know, the House of Cards deal for Netflix, you know, those, it was a sick amount of money per episode, you know, for something that was just going out on a streaming service. So you can't say the net isn't monetizing. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, thank you. <sighs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was great. How's that for Sunday morning? <laughs> so are you the, the jazz fan? Were you the one that yeah. had the Eric Dolphy in there? And, yeah, uh, yeah, I was, yeah. That's great. I've been, I've been trying to find a movie to put that particular Eric Dolphy track yeah. in for years. I was like, I'm putting it in downloaded, goddammit. Well, that's, like, I like the I like the chat aspect of, of Napster, but I, to me, it, it just turned into SoulSeek, and SoulSeek was only, like, interestingly enough, like, jazz and avant-garde. Yeah. I think, like, obscure punk stuff. Like, yeah. It's like the, the libraries reflected the users at that Completely. point. Completely, yeah. Whereas BitTorrent was just like, oh, you want to get that? Yeah. You know? It was like, Lime, BitTorrent was like LimeWire. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was a, a complete garbage dump. I mean, you could use it for certain things, but it was really just, it was too much crap. And it was mostly like porn and like apps that didn't work. And I mean, you know, you could, uh, the, the Pirate Bay movie, I think is actually really, really cool yeah. because um, and people really don't get Simon's movie. It's very frustrating to me. But they just look at those guys like, oh, they're just jerks. But it's like, it's really fascinating the divide between the piracy aspect. People who were like, fuck it, we're pirates. Straight yeah. up. You know, that's just not what Fanning and Parker were trying to do. Um, and that divide, because it's all about a delivery system, right? So for Park, for Fanning, music was a delivery system to get people into the community. He was like, I could have used anything. Yeah, I'd use yeah. music because I knew that people liked music, right? And so the same thing with Pirate Bay and, and, and BitTorrent, like the things about those services that I did like was that it was like, okay, most people are gonna either, of our demographic, are either gonna want porn or free apps because they're expensive. They're yeah. gonna want Photoshop for free or porn. And that'll get them into our space and then we have a community and then we have an ethos and then we build from there. It's really fascinating. Like it's, I find those, you know, and they are morally complicated yeah, yeah. arguments, you know what I mean? But look at where Pirate Bay has come. Now they have political parties, now they have an ethos. 
So you can't, you know, the whole, and so it really fucks with people's minds because people like black and white. Yeah. So they'll go, well, Pirate Bay is just bad. And this movie is just about bad people doing bad things. Or Sean was just bad, you know, and you just miss all of the stuff that's actually causing the Arab Spring and causing Wiki, and like, it is, in spite of that, changing the world. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. I find it really interesting. Well, I like the return of what happened on IRC when you exchange files, which is the ratio system, which now exists for private torrent trackers, right. which I think is really interesting because those are literal communities. Right. And they require you to, like the one I'm a part of for film is Karagarga, and it's because right. it has the things that I can't buy. Right, like exactly. It has the, right. the rips of the VHS tapes of right. like that Japanese film. From, totally, yeah. And you have to contribute, though. Like Absolutely. You can't be yeah. a You can't be a leecher. You yeah. have to have a, a ratio. And Oyster was, was one of the leaders of that. Yeah, yeah. With Oyster, you had, you had to have um, a, you know, a tracked... Um, you had to be tracked in order to download anything. Yeah. You couldn't just jump on and torrent something. And it was the same thing. It was, you know, you, if your ratio dipped below, you just got booted. And yeah. that was, you were done. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you had to have an invite to get in. Yeah. So, and then eventually they killed it. But it was an amazing community. E-Donkey, too, as I remember. Yeah, I didn't ever use E-Donkey. It became, like, it was like the pre-torrent. I mean, I remember it, but I didn't use it. Well, it had, like, all the obscure foreign films that you couldn't get. Like, right. that, that was that service for yeah. me it was just for yeah. like things that were unavailable and that's what Fanning really is bummed about like you know if I was going to do an addendum with Sean that's what I would do it on it's like he feels like you know that the, everyone got so paranoid that it's really hard to find the good stuff now. Yeah. you know that everything got clamped down on and I mean it isn't true to some degree it's just more, like you said it's more rarefied yeah. and you have to it's kind of gone back to the beginning like the IRC days where you have to be really good at the net yeah. or put a lot of labor in and it's a shame because there's a lot of great shit out there that people just don't get to see.